Hello, I'm Vaishnavi Palapotu. And I'm Kirti Jayakumar. Welcome to the Feminifesto podcast. Where we speak to women from around the world who work in politics, international relations, peace building, development, law and diplomacy. Join us in this journey for your fortnightly fix with plenty of food for thought, moving conversations and the stories of some epic women in their own words. Hi, welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I speak to Dr. Meenakshi Gopinath, who is the founder and director of WISCOM, that's Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace, an initiative that seeks to promote the leadership of South Asian women in the areas of peace, security and regional cooperation. She is also the chair of the Board of Governors, the Center for Policy Research and the Principal Emerita of Lady Sri Ram College in New Delhi, where she served as the principal for 26 years from 1988 to 2014. She has been a member of the University Grants Commission of India and was the first woman to serve as a member of the National Security Advisory Board of India. Do take a listen. Thank you for joining us today on the Feminine Festo podcast, Dr. Meenakshi. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So I'm going to jump right in. You've worked in academia, in policy, in peace and security, but where did all of this begin? Well, first of all, uh, Kirti and Vaishnavi, let me say what a pleasure and an honor it is for me to have this conversation with you. Uh, you know, people like you give us so much hope for the future. And uh, when you talk about beginnings, uh, when we started out, uh, I think uh, the struggle was on several fronts. Uh, You have newer horizons to conquer different kinds of challenges. And looking at the energy that both of you bring, um, I have no doubt uh, that those horizons will open up uh, many, many better futures for you and your compatriots. Uh, So I, of course, uh, uh, have, you know, the the conventional journey of career, family and education, but my work in education uh, privileged me with a magical context, truly magical context, to work with exceptional young women and men um, whose trajectory really inspired me. And being in a women's college as its president for nearly 26 years, uh, I really, you know, it gave me an insider's view or a ringside view on how women find agency, the choices they make, the considered choices they make, and what they do with their education. In other words, what they reject from the stranglehold of Procrustean beds of learning and how they reinvent themselves. And this has been a most exciting journey. It has been about agency, about women claiming agency. Um, And then of course, also about putting our conventional ideas of success and leadership to stringent scrutiny, inverting those paradigms, also inverting uh, the the idioms of received curricula. So this was a challenging and a most exciting space. It also happened to coincide with the resurgence of the women's movements in the 80s again, where the universities were beginning to open up 
to the post uh, towards equality phase, right? Uh, you know, the famous report that began to look at feminist issues, women's issues in those days, and uh, campuses were opening up to the possibilities of a different discourse. And then of course, um, I had the opportunity uh, to work with several track two initiatives, especially between uh, Pakistan and India. And then that led me on to realize that we were still trapped within a very masculinist discourse on peace building, dialogue, because we were trapped within the Westphalian notions of security uh, as, a, as a kind of zero sum game. Uh, and that the feminist idea of connectedness, inclusion did not sit very well with this kind of real politic. So I was in some sense almost challenged or exhorted uh, by, by a friend then to say, okay, uh, do something about it if you're not very comfortable with this way of approaching peace building. Because in, in session after session after session of many of these track two initiatives, we were merely, we were still speaking peace and thinking war, right? And we were in some senses duplicating the paradigms of the track one, uh, the status discourse. Uh, it was difficult to, uh, to sort of call it a feminist discourse then because then you would get a lot of backlash. But I think that is where one was really coming from. So WISCOMP really began in 1999 uh, before we had the advantage of the normative framework, if you want to call it that, of 1325. And we were in a space, peace and security, that was then untenanted by women. But you know what we were doing then, not very consciously, what 1325 exhorted us to do, a 1325 plus plus, uh, you know, 10, 20 years on, exhorted us to do. And we were doing it because we were immersed in many ways in the South Asian feminist consciousness. And I'll come to that because you also speak about the global South and how very often uh, the global South and its initiatives have been invisibilized in the meta-narratives on, global, uh, on, uh, on the global meta-narratives of gender, peace and security. Uh, women, peace and security, but it's most appropriate to call it gender, peace and security because it's not just confined to women within quotes. So we, uh, I believe that, you know, we, we thought that we had a small role to play in somehow opening up the space for alternative ideas of peace building. We felt that women did speak in a different voice and that it was possible, necessary for that voice to find articulation. Um, so what did we do? We set up this initiative, we were incubated uh, very generously by the uh, Foundation for Universal Responsibility of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It was a non-sectarian organization. It pretty much allowed us to define our own, um, uh, shall I say, agenda. And I remember very early when I went looking for funds to one of the Scandinavian 
um, uh, the embassies of a Scandinavian country and met the ambassador and said, this is what we want to do. He said, ah, oh, very sexy. You have women, you have peace and you have security. Why will I not help you? So that's the way it was seen as a bit of a novelty at that particular point, probably a bit of exotica at that particular point. And but then we never really looked back. So we tried to provide a space between academia, policy and uh, and the, uh, the NGO sector. And it's interesting that each of them thought of us as belonging to the other sector. So we were not we were not in competition with anyone. We afford, we tried to build a bridge between these three erstwhile discrete domains, which are otherwise actually intertwined and should be intertwined. And we thought of bringing together uh, what we call potential and expertise, uh, where senior practitioners, uh, senior women practitioners, particularly, worked with new entrants into the field. And mind you, at that time, uh, women in international relations were still confined to Anne Tickner and Cynthia Enloe. You know, it was very much within that uh, amazing framework, but there was very little other work. Of course, there was Carol Cohen and a few others who had that work there. So um, we tried to build an alternative discourse, a people-centered discourse, and bringing together young people with senior professional in a non-hierarchical space of dialogue. So ours was a, both a research and proxy initiative. We have over 300 plus publications, uh, mostly on peace and conflict. Uh, the other thing we tried very assiduously to avoid was a reductivist idea of women, that women make peace and men make war. We wanted to move away from that. We spoke, we were very early conscious of gender, even though it doesn't appear in our acronym WISCOMP. And now I feel WISCOMP is really an acronym for wisdom and compassion. So, uh, you know, but it of course stands for women in security, conflict management and peace. We realized we've moved away from the notion of management to conflict transformation. And we set up a whole series of uh, symposia, dialogues, and one of our, shall I say, our flagship programs was the conflict transformation uh, workshops, uh, 10-day residential workshops that we ran between what we call young Indian and Pakistani future influentials. Today, over, over 12 years, we, we did this through the darkest days, uh, post Kargil, uh, post the Mumbai blasts, when, when dialogue had ceased at the top level. Now, how could we do this? I think because we were women, we were able to slip between the cracks. People thought here, these, these are women who are doing, you know, women soft issues, the women things. So we managed to get our visas, how we got them is, is, is sort of unimaginable at a time when uh, large think tanks were unable to uh, make their way, but we continued. And today we have a cohort of over 550 young people, now perhaps not so young because they were they started out in the, the first workshop we had was in 2000, uh, talking about the difficult issues, addressing them, 
Uh, whether it was Kashmir, whether it was Balochistan, whether it was security issues, whether it was issues of identity, whether it was issues of nationhood, and, uh, and whether it was issues. So the idea was really to look at finding common ground, recognizing the differences, not sweeping them under the carpet, but building on the commonalities. That was really our approach. Um, so I would say that then we moved very, very, you know, almost simultaneously into working in uh, areas of conflict within India, uh, bringing together communities who were riven by either ethnic or, or, or religious discord, trying to create safe spaces, uh, starting Kashmir, Northeast, what have you, and also setting up cross-border conversation. One early uh, a conversation that we facilitated, which stands out even today, was between uh, Naga women and women in uh, Sri Lanka. At that time, very much in, in parts of the LTTE-dominated areas, uh, with uh, with somebody called Dr. Paula Banerjee, who has done a lot of work in, in this area, whose work I'm sure you know. So, so that was that was our effort to combine proxy and research, and I don't think we've looked back. Um, it's been an exciting journey. It's been a bumpy road. It's not been easy. Um, it's been a constant, uh, you know, pushing the envelope uh, to to build an alternative discourse on peace and security that is not state centric, that is not military centric, that is not androcentric, that is not anthropocentric, uh, okay, and, and that is not ethnocentric. So uh, you see now how as many women and women's initiatives in South Asia have always done, we established the link early on between peace, development, and transcending conflict. So the so-called SDGs, uh, and the foregrounding of them today was already implicit in the work of many South Asian women who were building transversal solidarities across borders and boundaries. Um, and this is where I, I thought I must flag this here, because as I said, the work of South Asian feminists has been invisibilized. And I'm really grateful to your work because you are trying to correct that uh, that imbalance in many ways. So basically, women in South Asia entered the peace building field through the corridors of human security. That's how they came into it. And when you think about, you know, that early a quote by uh, Mahabubul Haq, who actually um, framed the Human Development Report, and it, it really stays with me. And I quote from him, it says, human security is a child that did not die, a disease that did not spread, a job that was not cut, an ethnic tension that did not explode in violence, a dissident who was not silenced. Human security is not a concern with weapons. It is a concern with human life and dignity. And even today, it rings so true for us, right in the middle of the pandemic, as the world faces a recrudescence of the warrior discourse, cultures of militarism, 
cultures of populist leaders who are entrenched in machismo. So as I said, the battle for freedom is never done and the field is never quiet. Uh, and so we soldier on. Uh, and uh, that's, that is what I wanted to share as, as I said. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Dr. Meenakshi. It's been quite a fascinating journey and evolution, really, since you first entered the space and started with Comp. And I really liked what you said about how the current um, dealing in security is talking about peace but doing more. And I think that line really summed it up for me. So no feminist journey is devoid of any kind of hurdles. So what were some of your major challenges that you faced throughout your career and your feminist journey? Were there a lot of patriarchal and misogynistic impositions in any of your engagements? Vaishnavi, um, can I get a little off track uh, and tell you that really the biggest challenges are always internal. Okay. And if you're asking, and since for us, for young people like Kirti, you and older people like me, the personal is the political. We have to really somewhere begin with putting our own thoughts, our own processes to stringent scrutiny. And, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a very Socratic kind of sense, uh, so rid ourselves of thoughtlessness, as they say, uh, to, to put our own truths to scrutiny. So for me, I think one of the greatest challenges, and especially in the peace building field, which is often seen as an area which is full of hurdles, uh, is to develop an abiding sense, I think, of spiritual abundance. And when I say spiritual, I do not mean in religious. I do not mean denominational. But the possibilities that, that exist are moving from a mentality of scarcity towards potentialities. Because if you don't do that, you never really can work. You're so overwhelmed by conflict, by the obstacles that come your way, and there are many. Um, and then it's also important to have these multiple conversations with oneself, even as one engages in dialogue, opening up dialogic spaces between so-called divided communities. Uh, it's very, very important. Um, and to interact with a world that may not always prove reinforcing of trust. Okay. And that is so important. So developing a kind of authenticity. And I, I noticed, you know, when we started working in Kashmir uh, as a small group, Kashmir had been so beset by this huge cloud of mistrust that the first thing they wanted to know is what is your agenda and who sent you? Whose agent are you? And it takes a lot of uh, just being constantly aware of not slipping away from authenticity that builds that kind of trust. And I can say at the end, at, towards the middle of our journey, we realized that we had actually won the trust of a lot of large and different constituencies there in our grassroots and civil society work. The second thing is also to, while you comfort, while we all try to comfort the afflicted, it's also important to afflict the comfortable especially when they are so wrong, especially in terms of security, issues of security, what constitutes security? Uh, and to, to wrest it from the male bastions and the smoke-filled rooms 
and bring it squarely into the area of democratic discourse and to be sensitive to the heat and dust of subaltern aspirations. Today we see that writ large, you know, what is security? How does a woman or a man or, a, or someone from a marginalized sexual minority feel secure in a context that is overwhelmingly patriarchal? And patriarchy not just affects women, it damages men, right? And I think the ability to persuade our co-travelers, both men and women, of this amazing, this, 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 this kind of a patriarchal stranglehold is important, which is why WISCOM, all our workshops would have at least 30% men involved. That was one of our principles, that we were not ghettoizing ourselves. And that, as you said in your very persuasive article, Vaishnavi, Women are not just going to speak about women's issues or the soft issues. We are creating an alternative civic sphere where we can speak for all marginalized, those who face injustice, and those who want to articulate a vision of the world that is sustaining and that is women. So the other aspect is also how to make despair unconvincing and hope practical. We have to make hope practical, not just be in the air. Because as it is, as people building peace, we're often brushed aside as, oh, those peaceniks. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're all in the air. It's all airy fairy. You've got to somehow communicate that peace is hard for business. And that speaking peace requires skills. It requires understanding. It re requires data. It requires being on top of, of, uh, of the information, the latest information, even on weaponry. You know, uh, Carol Cohen was often talk about the, the fact that this techno-strategic discourse keeps women out because it's so obfuscating and you feel intimidated, you can't break through. So when people are talking about collateral damage, by and large, we are thinking of human beings. Right? So you can't reify and fetishize the discourse on security. So one of the greatest challenges is to unscramble that discourse and also to push for visibility. When we started out, we used to be invariably the last speakers at the last session on any seminar on security. Uh, and invariably half the hall would leave because it would be post tea and everybody was happy to have call it a day. But we persevered. And today now it's de rigueur for any, any discussion on security to have at least a token woman. But we have to also make sure that the challenge is that we are not going to accept tokenism. It's not going to be add women and stir anymore. We have to make sure and be conscious to include and to suggest that perhaps your panel is a bit lopsided. Can I suggest this fantastic woman? And that's something women need to do more and more for, for the sisterhood, for solidarity, for women and men together. And the other is that um, to make a difference without taking oneself too seriously. Okay, like uh, I think Maya Angelou said once and very, very succinctly, my purpose in life is not just to survive, but it is to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor and some style. And I think, it, you know, to keep that balance when things are going wrong, not to begin to take ourselves too seriously. The other thing I would say is to... Be constantly open 
to the unexpected and also to the magic of the moment. Uh, be aware, you, you've spoken a lot about how women are waging conflict non-violently. That's what we are doing. We're waging conflict non-violently because all conflict is not bad. If we didn't have conflict, we wouldn't be where, we wouldn't have got the few rights that we have today. But the essence is non-violent. And therefore some kind of, uh, you know about the martial, uh, martial arts and Aikido. You talk about being water, right? And what is so special about water? It's in the Tower of Leadership. It's that water can break down the hardest of rock because it's flexible. It can go around. It can wear down the hardest of rock. So to have that flexibility is important. And I always call it the ability to speak more and more and to get more and more people in this area of peace and security to speak in the mother tongue. And I don't mean Tamil, English, Urdu. I mean the metaphoric mother tongue, the mother, the, the, the mother tongue, the language of inclusion, uh, the language that is very often on the verge of silence, but always on the verge of song, the language that can turn maps around and the language that can speak truth to power as you have demonstrated in your various uh, references to the women in Sudan, the women in Colombia, the Shaheen Bagh women, the women's place in the resist, is, is in the resistance kind of argument that you've made. And so how do we get more and more people to speak in this tongue, the, the language of inclusion, the language of justice? Uh, so this, this is a challenge and, and I think um, given the, uh, the awareness uh, that there is a sisterhood. So we trace our lineage back to the women of the Greenham Commons. We look at the women in black. We look at the women in Bougainville. We look at the women in Liberia, the uh, women in the Irish peace process, women in the TRC in South Africa. And somehow there is a larger I would say a union collective unconscious. There is a palimpsest that is there available for us and we connect it to it intuitively. When I talk about women speaking in a different voice, I'm not only looking at it in the Gilligan sense, I'm talking about it as a kind of intuitive dipping into this collective unconsciousness. And we do bring different skills to the table, not identical skills. So I often, squirm from the word mainstreaming women. I would say right streaming. Mainstreaming into a, into a muddy stream is not what we want because we are trying to turn, change the terms of discourse. So, um, so these are some of the challenges, but they're not unsurmountable. As I said, as you go on this path uh, with each step, if one is able to build greater authenticity, greater transparency and eschew competitiveness. Because every woman's success or every gender sensitive man's success down this route is a collective success, is a collective uh, I, victory, if you want to call it that. And, uh, you know, you would ask me whether South Asia 
there is peace or is that is that something that keeps the us to well, we have my next question to you, Dr. Vina. Oh, sorry. So this what was intuitive reading your mind, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But please go for it. Please go for it. Well, you know, we do have sort of uh, uh, the formal piece in the sense of lack of war is not what we are looking for, right? We in, women in South Asia face a kind of peacetime war because they face a continuum of violence. Whether in the midst of armed conflict or even the so-called peacetime. In armed conflict, they confront two armed patriarchies, that of the state and that of the militants. And then they are there as minesweepers, as, uh, as all kinds of protective shields. They are there also to serve and they, they assume several roles uh, as peace builders, as combatants, as mothers. And in these multiple roles, they are negotiating the complex dialectic of victimhood and agency. And we have to understand this. It's not that agency appears one day fully blown from the heavens. There is this continuous navigating this complex dialectic or di dyad of victimhood and agency. But on the other hand, in the so-called peacetime, there are the patriarchies of family, of community, and the state, and above all, the complicities between them. And we have to be, so, so every woman, every woman is a warrior, if you want to call it that, or she's the Nubian queen, as, as Al-Sala was. Because every, all our, uh, shall I say, minor mutinies and our daily resistances, are adding to that critical mass. So whenever a young woman tells me, oh, I don't know anything about peace and security. I'm not in that field. I said, yes, you are in that field. Because your everyday resistances and daily mutinies give it the strength, the nurture, and the nourishment that it needs. And it draws from that very basic impulse for freedom and articulation. Uh, and and the fight against marginalization of all kinds. So as 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 I was uh, uh, as and I we may be running out of time and I, I I don't want to make your task more difficult, but I thought I would uh, leave you with this uh, or maybe leave this particular part of the conversation with something Camus said many years ago, and I find it a, such an evocative uh, exhortation, if you will. Uh, and he said, you know, great ideas come into the world as gently as doves. And perhaps then, if we live attentively, we shall hear amid the uproar of empires and nations, a flutter of wings, the gentle stirrings of life and hope. Some say that this hope lies in a nation, others in an individual. I believe it is awakened and nourished and revived by millions of individuals whose deeds and words negate frontiers of the crudest implications of history. And I think the crudest implications of history of xenophobia, of jingoism, of uh, toxic masculinities, 
and you know a, a, a dear friend of mine and you know her she's the irrepressible kamla basi the feminist she used to say that men of quality do not fear equality and i think that's a kind of impulse we have to travel with men uh, we have to be civilized and civilizing in the process we have to open multi logs we have to open our hearts and our minds and even as we must be sensitive to the pain on our planet we must be equally open to the beauty of a bud unfolding and i think that's what peace security and gender is all about it's beyond 1325 it's beyond the un it's here it's palpable it's for us to seize the hour and seize seize the time as karl marx once said <laughs> so absolutely dr meenakshi i really couldn't agree more and i could listen to you all day because i'm learning so much from everything that you're sharing and you know even though uh, you said that peace is kind of beyond the united nations and the resolution 1325 i'm curious to know um what do you see for india's engagement under the women peace and security agenda do you believe that a national action plan is in the offing see right now there are only two countries in south asia that have national action plans right there's nepal and afghanistan if i'm not wrong um sri lanka which had the best feminist writing on peace and security and almost the first to come in here with with the kind of rich research that they did also with radhika kumaraswamy herself coming from sri lanka doesn't yet have a national action plan right because if you're not signed on to 1325 as we are not because we don't believe that there is conflict within our borders we or at least formally we don't acknowledge that so what do we do a uh, several feminist uh, pioneers when they came up against this uh, this sort of um, shall i say erasure of the role of women in conflict and uh, peace building in the official discourse invoked the general resolution 30 of cedaw now we are signed on to cedaw to actually focus attention on the fact that women are particularly impacted by conflict and that it's important for governments to take note so women have to bricolage around whatever instruments are available so let's assume that it's not signed or national formal national action plan doesn't happen but what stops us from putting together a social action plan and i think that's where people like you your work is so important because you are contributing the vocabulary to that social action plan perhaps it can be a south asian social action plan can be a country specific social action plan and now all almost all countries are scrambling to demonstrate performance on the sdgs okay now rather than making it a sort of synthetic or synthesized or, or anesthetized piece of uh, ticking off the boxes and the indicators let us use the sdgs especially sdg 16 and sdg 5 on gender equality and see how we can bring them together and say that in order for 
SDG 16 to reali be realized, SDG 5 is integrity. Let's marry them and let's build a people's action plan on gender peace and security. You know, the field is just waiting. The world is, this world is waiting to be born. And then, and sometimes it requires that we march to the beat of a slightly different drum. Uh, we don't wait for things to happen from the citadels of formal security thinking. But we look at people's security, <laughs> security from below, if you want to call it, or, or, or I say the real security discourse. And uh, we, uh, we securitize democracy and, uh, sorry, we uh, democratize security and not securitize democracy. I think democratizing security itself is part of that action plan. And women can definitely, definitely play a very important role in that process. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Meenakshi. Um, so we're drawing towards the end of our episode and I'd like to ask you what you're working on right now and perhaps a little bit about what's coming from the WISCOMP and uh, your side as well. Uh, Kirti, thank you for that question. I, we, of course, uh, four years ago, started uh, a very exciting project on looking at higher education spaces and engendering them. So what we did was <clears throat> we tried to develop the parameters or the templates for HEIs to do their own gender audits. And a gender audit was, which was not just about the, the conventional way of looking at how many cases of sexual harassment did you have? Oh no, no that was not the idea. The idea was to look at how gender sensitive is your vision and mission, your administrative apparatus, the hiring that you do, the communication that you put out, what kind of people do you call to speak at your events? What does your website say? Who do you reward? What kind of work balance, professional um, progression uh, do you make affordable and available to women who are juggling multiple roles? What kind of, uh, how do you acknowledge their unpaid labor? How do you democratize the, com the committees and the workings and the hierarchies of departments? How do you make it accessible to women and men with disability? How do you, what is your, what is your organizational culture? What are your student uh, specific uh, activities and support systems. Okay, what does your curriculum look like? Who do you include as your reading lists? How do you rework? So there are about these six or seven parameters that we offer to uh, as 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 a starting point for universities and colleges to write out a template for their own internal audit system. So it's not just an expert coming in or parachuting in from outside, but for you to turn the searchlight inward, it is actually realizing the constitutional impulse of equality within the microcosm of the university, looking at all aspects, time allocation, how do you, when do you plan meetings? Do you plan meetings when women can't, you know, have to stay back late, be away from their child rearing functions? 
or do you acknowledge that as well? How do you plan? How do you add, do women do all the so-called ornamental work, like doing the decorations and, and making sure that the hospitality works when events are happening? Or is there an equal distribution of labor and so on? I'll never forget, there was a, I worked in this a funny incident I thought I should, uh, I should uh, share with you. Uh, when I was uh, working at Lady Sri Ram College, I had a very sort of, um, shall I say, a very spirited feminist colleague. And you may have read her. I, I, I will try and keep her anonymous for the moment. And we had uh, recruited a male bursar um, at that point of time. And we had very carefully allotted to him, in addition to all the work that he did, the... Uh, the whole range of hospitality uh, stuff that women usually take care of, like making sure the catering for conferences was 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 well under control and so on and so forth. And so this this young woman went up to him and and said, "You know, you would have made me such a good wife. I would have loved to marry you." And he, without batting an eyelid, turned round to her and said, "Thank you, ma'am." So that was, you know, it's just telling you about, you know, this whole business of apportioning of roles for city space, which is supposed to be such a transformative space, which is actually signaling to the rest of the, of the society as to what our aspirations about equality should be. So that was a very exciting and we worked with all kinds of institutions, universities, private and public, colleges, women's colleges, mixed so-called uh, all-sex colleges, uh, denominational colleges, religious, co I mean, denominational institutions, um, public funded institutions, private funded institutions, small institutions, large campuses. And it was amazing how almost in every single one of them we found levels of misogyny that you would think unimaginable on campuses of higher learning. So that is a work in progress. We're still doing that. And we are trying to, again, revive our Indo-Pak and South Asian dialogues. Now it can be done virtually. And we hope that you both will be a part of this. And uh, so these are, at the moment, what is on the anvil. We are also uh, collaborating with a women's uh, feminist magazine which is bringing in uh, all kinds of voices on peace. Uh, they had initially planned a huge event uh, in uh, May, but going to COVID and other related issues. And just to say, we have to also to think about, very seriously about the ethics of care. And how do we want to look at it uh, at this particular juncture that, the, that humanity at large faces, not just in our country, but the world at large. What are its parameters? So we are going to be doing some kind of brainstorming on that. Maybe a South Asian understanding of the ethics of care, uh, drawn largely from feminist uh, resources, but also available for uh, people of all persuasions, to join and uh, lend a hand. So I think that's a pretty full calendar for us for some time. And of course, talking to, 
and learning from young people like you. We're so honored, Dr. Meenakshi, truly. And we're really looking forward to all the amazing things that are in the calendar, in the works. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time today and for joining us on the Feminifesto podcast. We're so grateful for all the valuable insights and anecdotes that you shared. And we're really humbled by the well wishes that you um, sent to GSP and to Katie and myself. And our work only exists because of the paths that have been paved by giants such as yourself. And we truly couldn't be more thankful. So thank you so much, Dr. Meenakshi. Thank you, Vaishnavi and Kirti. It's been an honor, as I said. And you know, uh, we, we now find our fulfillment through the work of young people like you. And so there are no giants here. This is all a joint enterprise. <laughs> it's, it's a democratic, it's a sisterhood. It's uh, people who are, who are sort of walking together singing together, opening their hearts out to a world that is waiting to be born. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor.